0: And welcome to the Standing O Podcast. You are in for a sweet treat today. And yes, mom joke, pun intended, because my guest is the chief of cookies. Beth Shelton is the CEO of Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa, and she is truly a transformational leader. She's a culture shifter. I have been in the audience several times to hear Beth, and she describes leadership, teams, and organizations needing to flow in every direction, top down, bottom up, outside in, and inside out. And because of this, she has received national accolades for her innovation, for her vision, and she's been all the places, literally all the places, Good Morning America, Today Show, CNN, Washington Post, and it's just reading that, pretty cool to hear that she is here today on the standing O podcast. My purpose for starting the Standing O podcast has simply been to share stories, to tell the stories that everyone is playing in their head, but no one is saying aloud. And I'm so honored to share with you Beth's story. As you'll hear, Beth is a lifelong amputee. And while most of us don't have a physical disability, Beth's journey is so relatable. She talks about the fear of perfection and the fear of taking her own shot to transforming into ownership and this confidence that takes her and challenges her to do new, exciting things. This conversation was so rich that we had to split it into two parts. Today, you will learn more about young Beth and how sports and even with its hardships and modifications, shaped her and helped her find her voice. And that even today, as a mom, as a CEO, she is rekindling her drive, that sports, wellness, physical fitness is helping her find her voice once again. I'm so excited for you to meet my friend, Beth Shelton. Well, Beth, I'm so excited you're here. Thank you for being on the Standing O podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Okay. So I could just always just sit and listen to you because I've done it several times because you're an amazing speaker, but let's just start. Like, let's just start from the beginning when Beth was a little girl, like what were your dreams? Who did you want to be? Like, just tell us, like, take us back.
1: Okay, great. Well, thank you for your kind words. Uh, it really is an honor to be here. And, you know, talking sports, life, resilience, hope, those are my favorite topics. So I think athletics and sports really touch, touched everything in my life growing up and continue to shape so so many parts of me. So thinking back to childhood, I think I just came out, you know, with a love, love for sports. And I'm sure a big part of that was having an older brother who I really um, idolized. He was two years older than me. So what he loved, I loved. We, we grew up in a single parent family and didn't have a lot of money. And um, but what we did have was, you know, we had each other. We had a supportive environment and we were just outside a lot and played a lot. So from my earliest memories my very first love of sports really came from my very first t-ball team and for those that don't know i only have one hand i was born with one hand and despite that really took a love of all games all play so when i showed up for that very first team environment you know maybe a five-year-old beth here showing up no equipment you know one hand I had a coach that really leaned into supporting me was really proactive and said, okay, kid, let's figure this out. And he rigged up a glove for me with Velcro and wires and we were off to the races. And, you know, it really showed me that. I never felt like I couldn't do it. I, I grew up in an environment where people thought as long as she's going to show up and work hard, we're here to support her. And honestly, I had very few people ever, um, act differently toward me. So from an early age, I loved all things sports. And really, I think having that, maybe that built-in barrier or hurdle, if you will, made me stronger. I, I think in the long run, there's no question. It made me not only a more resilient person and leader, but it made me a better athlete. Maybe it was that when you have a chip on your shoulder and they can come in all forms, mine was physical that you could see, then you feel like you have something to prove, you know? And so I was always, as I as I got older, the first to practice, the last to leave, putting in those extra hours. Where my real love became shaped for sports was in middle school and it was for basketball. And that's fast paced. It's, uh, it's a game that I just really took to. And, and largely in part, Uh, because of attending the Drake women's basketball camp in the summer. I mean, I'm telling you, I thought Drake women, uh, you know, Lisa Bluter and Jan Jensen, the coaches at that time in the late 80s, early 90s, I thought they walked on water. I mean, I think they still do, right? Um, They're now over at the University of Iowa doing great things. And I still think the Drake women's program walks on water. So, But when I showed up at that camp, I was very introverted. I still am. And pretty self-conscious middle school is a hard time uh, for a lot of people. But when you look a little bit different or have a physical difference, uh, it it was a hard time. And they really wrapped me in love and support and encouraged me at that camp. And I came away from that camp, you know, maybe 11, 12 years old saying, I'll tell you one thing, I'm going to play basketball for Drake university. I love that.
0: I was going to ask you, you just brought up that being, self-conscious. I was going to ask, are you, was there ever a moment where you showed up to a practice or to school where, where you were like, I am different. Like, I can't do this. I am different. Everything I have to do. Everybody notices me. Like, did you ever feel like you were just hiding and you didn't want to come out and bust those barriers and those hurdles?
1: I felt that way every day. Mm -hmm. So, so despite feeling like I could accomplish and sort of knowing that in my spirit, I think I wore it more self-consciously. And maybe that is part of, you know, uh, growing up and coming into your own, but I constantly felt like people were looking at me or judging me, or I wasn't a good enough teammate, you know, right down to all, all the way through high school basketball, despite likely being the most accurate shooter on the team. Um, not the best player, but likely the most accurate shooter. Uh, I would often pass the ball, right? I would often look for someone else who was open instead of taking an open shot. And of course, it just frustrated my coach to know. And he'd say, take the shot, take the shot. And I think all through school, you know, the analogy was I had a hard time taking the shot because I didn't want to disappoint. I didn't want to miss. I didn't want to let people down. And I wore that, I think, in everything I, I tried to do. Like that I could, if I couldn't do it perfectly, if I couldn't please everyone around me with the performance in some way, then it wasn't good enough and I didn't, you know, I, I wanted to defer or or give that moment to someone else, rather than the risk of trying and failing.
0: Yeah, I can, I, I can, I can see that and I can relate to that I think a lot of people, even without a physical disability can relate to that story of feeling like what happens if I'm not perfect. So, was there a moment for you where you were like, screw it, I'm taking the shot?
1: Yeah, I wish that that moment had happened at a younger age because it's so freeing when you realize, and what if I do miss the shot? Guess Mm -hmm. what? Welcome Mm -hmm. to the human experience. We miss the shot all the time, you know? Um, I really started to sit in acceptance of that feeling um, once I became a college athlete. And I think it's because I started to to feel like I was wearing um, the confidence of, of truly being the, maybe the, being the best one on the team. Now, uh, I'm sorry for any spoiler alert, alerts here for listeners. <laughs> I did not play basketball for Drake University. <laughs> I was not uh, anywhere nearly skilled enough. So what I did play is uh, Division three tennis. And I, I worked hard. I leaned into that. And I have a mentality that... I think was the seeds of which grew as a freshman in college, which is, you know, that being the case, how shall I proceed? Look, I'm not good enough to be a Division One basketball player. That being the case, what are my options? What can I do? And I was a pretty skilled tennis player. It turns out it's it's much less important to have two, uh, two hands, much less important to have dexterity with tennis. And A couple of things I did that freshman year, I went and got a loan and I bought a tennis ball machine and I stayed up every night that summer. I worked full time and I got that tennis ball machine out. I could never find anyone who wanted to go play every single night as much as I wanted to play and wanted to work on drills and wanted to. So finally, I'm like, okay, what can I do about that? I bought that tennis ball machine and I really started to um, fine tune the game, you know, my game. And so I think what happened is I started to get that confidence that I am being my very best, you know, by my sophomore year in college, I think I truly was hitting my stride on being my very best. So despite the fact that sometimes I still missed the shot in tennis, the shots are different, you know, but I still missed the shot. I also felt the confidence that I was capable of taking the shot and it, and sometimes you do miss, sometimes you do double fall. Sometimes you do give the unforced error, but I also felt confident that I could lean into giving it my best and I, I think that's really when that started to grow and it's a work in progress, you know, it's a work in progress that, you know, everything, what I, I don't, you know, whether it's running my first half marathon feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't run three miles, which was, you know, I didn't, I didn't start that until I was 30, that overwhelming feeling of that. There's no way I could do that. And then, but sort of saying like, okay, one step at a time here, what can you accomplish? What can you do? Um, all the way to leading leading an organization now. I can tell you that the day I got the job offer for for the job I have today, I had that moment of sort of like twelve year old Beth, like I don't want to take the shot. I, what if I'm not good at it? What if I can't do this? You know. So it's it's a work in progress. But I think that's really where it started was in college sports. Mm. Uh,
0: what I'm hearing in that is like this this transition of ownership. So like high school Beth on the basketball court. It's like the 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 coach is the judge, or the coach tells you if you're perfect or not. And then it's like Beth in the driveway. At least this is what I'm picturing: Beth in the driveway with a tennis ball machine, like whacking it against the garage door. I don't know how you did it, but like there's ownership in that process. And when I talk to a lot of high school, college girls that I'm mentoring or whatever, it's the it's it's that discrepancy in well, I want my coach to like me, or I want this result, but that lack of ownership. Like they, there's this disconnect. We feel somehow it's somebody else's responsibility to give me confidence and not understanding that you have that control in the process.
1: Oh, that's such a great way to put that. I think there's this idea that there's these goal posts. And when you allow someone else to determine what success looks like for you, the goalpost is always moving. So you like, you have this yardstick, you know, don't hand your yardstick to someone else. And then say, how do I measure up? And I do think that transfer of ownership you're talking about is really learning to say, I own the yardstick. And here's how I define success and failure today. And I'm telling you, these words, you know, this this idea didn't come to me until I was in my 40s. But success is no longer for me uh, married to the outcome of whatever the thing is. And I am very goal driven. To this day, I'm a very goal driven, ambitious person at work, at play, in sports, everything I touch I'm goal driven. However, success is not married to the outcome. So let's just say uh, I'm making a goal of 70 pushups, right? So I like to do kickboxing and this is fitness stuff as part of my part of my life now. So if I make a goal to do 70 push-ups and then I get to the final day where I'm supposed to do it and I get 60 push-ups. Uh, For me, that's in no way a failure, right? Success is when I uh, make a goal and I I make active steps, intentionality, accountability, uh, to the very degree that I can to accomplish that. And then maximize my learning and growth along the way, period. Whether I hit, hit that number is arbitrary. If I maximize my learning and growth along the way, that is success. The only time I have failure is when I lose my sense of self. If I beat myself up or wear this shame or disappointment that I didn't do X, Y, Z, that's the only time I fail. And I wish I could take that learning and give it to 12-year-old Beth and say, now go, go through life with this. You know, there's just something about earning those stripes the hard way. I I have teenage daughters and I'm trying to sort of impart that wisdom. That's just not quite how it works though, is it? No, unfortunately. (laughs) Beth,
0: now you have like all this wisdom, right? And all these things like you wish you would tell yourself. And if you were to dissect your journey, like backwards, what were some key learning steps in that process to today?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I think back to that moment, I showed up as a freshman uh, on that tennis team in college, and I was not the best one. I wanted to be the best, and I was used to being one of the better athletes in high school. Right, a little bit of a smaller high school, and I was a hard worker. So I think what it taught me was, uh, first of all, some humility, uh, and um, that it was a whole new playing field. And if I wanted. To be the best. And if I wanted to be my best, I had to get a little bit more intentional about about what that meant and sort of unpack that into some some steps. And I think it goes back to that sort of accountability that w- what piece of this can I control? I cannot control that I'm not the you know I was not affluent. I did not grow up in an affluent household. Many college tennis players um, grew up in in settings where they had private lessons and great equipment. And I remember looking at them thinking they just look like a goddess on the court. They're in a different league than I am. Okay. That being the case, I can't change that. Right. I can't rewind my life and, and have private country club tennis lessons, but what could I do? Could I, could my forehand get stronger? Um, You know, could I get better ball placement? Could I figure that out? And I knew that like theoretically i could if I, with more practice and intentionality i could i also knew that as an 18 year old i couldn't afford private lessons even even at that time so i think what what happened in that moment that felt like a light switch is that i do have some control over my destiny despite hurdles economic hurdles at the time and despite some physical barriers not having two hands. I did know that I I could impact some areas and I would not feel maybe satisfied in my soul until I felt like I had extinguished all those possibilities. So for me, that was kind of that transformative moment. And I don't know why it took until being 18 years old and faced with that particular hurdle at that particular time. Maybe part of it was the growth of going off to college where you do have those moments of uh, more autonomy, spreading your own wings a little bit more. Maybe that was part of it. Um, but I did for the, really the first time feel like I am 100% in control of what happens here to the degree that I can be. I ended up being the number one player at at my college and and having a great experience, but I still was never the best. I never won the conference championship, right? Like it's not a fairy tale that I I didn't go off and and play on the professional circuit or something, right? Like I was my very best, which is to say I was the number one player at a small division three private college. And I feel fabulous about it. I don't know if there's much else I could have done to, to be a much better player. Like that is where Beth peaked and I feel great about it. I love that story.
0: You're saying Beth peaked, but before we talk about the transition, like out of, of sport into boss lady status, like you're still chasing goals and doing new things. And the, the trajectory of your, uh, redefining success seems to have played out in this too so can you tell us a little bit about like the new challenges beth is facing and the new peaks you're reaching for because i i find it all fascinating
1: yeah thank you well yes that's a great point thank you for saying that i maybe i should clarify right and say that i think that's where (laughs) beth peaked in tennis uh competitive yeah yeah competitive collegiate tennis right i'm i'm still pretty mad with like a pickleball racket though you know (laughs) so um Yeah. Wow. It's been quite a journey. And to, to sort of fast forward where we are now, you know, Beth in her forties leading an organization, I, I still have a hunger. A hunger is just part of, it is just part of who I am. And what I've experienced in the past year in my life has been transformative in, in quite a few ways, but I would say my, at this point of my life, I have an awakened spirit for bringing out the best in my physical self, my physical body. And that's been kind of an awakening, you know, because I think in my twenties and thirties, I did what a lot of people do and nothing wrong with that. Right. I, I got married, I had kids, I have, I have three children, you know, get solid footing in my workplace, and my career and make changes and buy a bigger house and all these things. And I wasn't really putting my own oxygen, you know, my putting the oxygen mask on, on myself, uh, first. And I started to lose myself. I started to lose myself physically, but then um, I think that really is an indication I was losing myself internally uh, and who I was and what I wanted and and um, what I needed and what's healthy for me. So today, what that looks like is uh, I would think a really high level of self-care. When I I ask myself questions like, when do I feel the most Beth, which sounds silly, but if someone says to you, like, when do you feel the most Erica? Like, who, who are you with? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And making sure that how we spend our time is aligning with when we feel the most like us. So if we find ourselves pulled out of that lane frequently, it's kind of that, that sign, that flashing red light that's saying, okay, this is, maybe this isn't healthy for you. Maybe on the outside, it's what everyone else wants you to do, expects you to do but it's not healthy for you. So for me, that feels today like, so kickboxing and and resistance training, that's been a huge part of my life now, just in the last really eight to 12 months, something I didn't really see coming. I sought it out for my mental health. I mean, we can all probably acknowledge the pandemic was difficult in a lot of ways, right? And it was for me too, um, professionally uh, and at home, trying to raise three kids and working from home and, you know, all of these factors. And I found myself um, struggling mentally to stay, sort of stay afloat, you know, to feel healthy. I was trying to escape uh, and I was feeling stressed and I was feeling maybe depression and anxiety, things I had never in my life in my four years fell ever. So I thought, well, what, Hey, that being the case, how shall I proceed? Right. What can I do about it? And I decided to, to seek some, you know, group fitness classes and lo and behold, it's really changed my life. And it wasn't, I didn't jump right in and, and, and be a natural at this. I kind of hung my head. I walked through the doors and said, I don't, you know, only have one hand and I just want to punch a bag. I'm kind of falling apart in life here. And uh, they said, okay, okay, we'll work with you. You know, this is uh, at, at Ferrell's Extreme Body Shaping, and they have a lot of different components. It's way more than punching a bag, right? They have nutrition, and they have strength training. And I was like, no, no, I don't want any. that I just want to punch a bag. And they, <laughs> they sort of met me where I was, right? Uh, they had the patience to meet me there, but they had the courage to not let me stay there. And they really helped push me. I attended those those kickboxing classes on three days a week for six months before they encouraged me to do resistance training. Now, for perspective, it's like it's like bands, right? Bands classes, right? And so you're you're pulling and lifting, and I, it takes two hands, really. It does. So I was like, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. You don't understand. I'm going to fumble around. I can't hold onto it. Everyone's going to be looking at me. I mean look, when I say this is a journey, that sounds like 12-year-old Beth that wouldn't take the shot. You know, Mm -hmm. everyone's going to be looking at me. I don't want to do it. I don't want to fail. And um, one of the coaches there encouraged me and said, you you can do this. Your your self-limiting talk is not effective right now. We're going to work with you. Get in here and you can do it. And I suppose I kind of bottled up some of that life wisdom, like, well, maybe they know better than I do. I suppose I'll try. I said, I will try it once. Mm-hmm. And what they had done is rigged up. It, it sounds a lot like my T-ball coach. Someone stepped in and said, Hey, let's, let's figure this out. They came with adaptive equipment and it was a uh, carabiners and it was a Velcro wrist thing. And uh, it was incredible. I will never forget that day. It was in March, March of this year. It was about eight months ago. And um, the feeling of resistance training, I, that I had never experienced muscles I didn't know were there and I was hooked, you know? So I, it's not like I have it all figured out when we talk about this journey, you know, I can, I can sit here and have self-limiting talks still in my forties. And then it just, sometimes it takes, um, either that reminder or that encourager, uh, someone to say like, you, you can do this, uh, and to show up for you. And it's been really incredible. My body has changed, but even, even more, my resilience has changed exponentially. You know, when I hear that
0: story, I mean, obviously I, It's cool to know you and to hear that about you, but I also hear it from a coach perspective and like the power in a coach being like, you can do this. And not only just like telling you, but finding the modifications, finding the way to make you successful. That is just such, that's so powerful.
1: I just, oh, it
0: gives me goosebumps.
1: It really is. It really is impactful that they let me sit in that for just a hot minute, right. You know, or six months, right. They let me sit in my space and they could see, and you're getting a great coaches. They, they see when you're ready or when that spark is there. And then they jump, right. Then they, then they jump in and ignite. And I think that's a really great analogy and great coaches do have the ability to do that. They somehow have the ability to bring out the very best in people to levels that we didn't think was possible. And I can absolutely tell you, that's what my coaches have done in in this sense. That's powerful
0: because it's not just like a coach in like a collegiate setting. It's like your T-ball coach when you're five and it's this personal trainer when you're 40, like that is such empowering right there. You know what I mean? Like It can be anybody. It can be anybody.
1: It does. And it can go so far beyond the physical body, right? It can go into leadership in the workplace and mentorship and um, you know all all of those areas and and friendship, the ways that we can uh, support each other and and empower each other. So in all of those cases, no one did it for me. They showed up and sort of walked the journey with me to bring out the best in me. And how fortunate am I? I will never stop saying that I'm so privileged and so fortunate. If you can count one person in your life who has done that, you're fortunate. And I probably have um, five or six that have just shown such uh, insight and then um, sometimes creativity and certainly just genuine love for another person to do that. It's, I'm really lucky.
0: My takeaway from that conversation is take the shot. Shoot or shoot, take the shot. It doesn't just apply in sports in all of our goals, in all of our walks of life, take the shot. And I love what Beth said, success is not married to the outcome. It's maximizing your learning and growth along the way. And the only failure is losing your sense of self. I told you, total sweetness. Be sure to come back next week and hear part two of our conversation with Beth Shelton. We get into the nitty-gritty the here and now the importance of good leadership and the research that the girl scouts is doing on girls and confidence and how we as friends as parents as coaches how we can do our own part to impact the alarming ecosystem surrounding girls and their self-esteem trust me if you thought young beth was remarkable You're going to want to hear what she's up to now. You can find Beth Shelton on all her socials. They are linked in the show notes. And remember, it's cookie season. So be on the lookout for Girl Scouts in your community. Here in Iowa, the cookies go on sale February 1st. As always, thank you for tuning in to the Standing O podcast If you love guests like Beth Shelton, help us spread the word so we can get more amazing guests on this show. Share, subscribe, and tag She Plays Now on your social media. Until next time, this is Coach D, and I'm cheering you on.